and welcome to Field Notes on Climate Change, reporting in from the front lines of Arctic research. I'm Emma Brisden and this podcast has been produced in partnership with the Climate Impacts Research Centre and is based at the Arbusco Scientific Research Station in northern Sweden. This week, I'm joining Steph Owens from the University of San Francisco as she conducts her research on some of the smallest but most important creatures that inhabit our lakes, copepods. So today I'm back out in Stordalen Mire, which I've also visited before for an episode on methane emissions coming from lakes. Um, but this time I'm joined by Steph and we're looking at some of the microscopic life in these ponds. But first things first, Steph, this is a climate change podcast. So with climate change kind of incorporating loads of really different small fields of research, yeah. what does climate research actually look like to you? To me, I'd say I'm really interested in food web dynamics. So. Like you mentioned, I study zooplankton, and zooplankton are this principal link between the base of the food web, like phytoplankton, and then larger or higher level trophic species like fish, and then even um, above that. Um, So I'm interested in studying zooplankton dynamics, so things like growth, reproduction, um, abundance, to kind of get a better idea of what's going on in the system, and then if we can monitor that, see how that's changing um, in our changing environment. Great, and you've mentioned a few words there that I was going to pick you up on. First of (laughs) all, yes, you're right, we're looking at zooplankton and we're looking at copepods specifically. But, you know, before we get started, what are they? Good question. (laughs) So copepods are the most abundant group of zooplankton. So zooplankton are, besides being very adorable creatures, um, they're really, (laughs) really tiny um, microscopic crustaceans that live pretty much any aquatic environment, lakes, streams, the ocean, ponds, groundwater even. Oh. Um, and they're also one of the most abundant animals on the planet. So yeah, copepods just make up the most abundant group of zooplankton. Yeah. Okay, great. And one of the things we're looking at in your experiments today is their kind of their growth rates. Mm-hmm. So why are we interested in that? Um, so copepod growth production is the key rate process of secondary production and so things like larval fish and even later stages of fish they pretty much at some stage in their life always feed on copepods so if we can study how fast they're growing um, we can get a better idea of their secondary productivity um, which is kind of like a snapshot of what's going on rather than abundance Um, and so that can tell us things that ultimately relate to if they're growing faster they're going to be um, reproducing faster, higher abundances, more food available to fish is ultimately kind of the end goal to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're pretty tiny, but pretty important. They do kind of underpin the whole food web. Exactly. So there's the link between the base, which is really tiny, you know, like phytoplankton or even microzooplankton um, to fish. So they really provide that link that without them, the system, I think, would, you know, wouldn't really work as well. <laughs> And um, your work up here is based in Arbusco this Mm -hmm. summer. Um, What makes the Arctic a really interesting place to be looking at zooplankton? Because as you said, they occur everywhere, don't they? Right, exactly. So the Arctic is, you know, it's it's a really changing environment. And um, so the impacts that we're going to be seeing are going to be heightened in the Arctic. And so looking at things like um, increased runoff um, into the systems, uh, we're trying to see if that increased runoff, which is on one hand 
introducing nutrients, but on the other hand, um, limiting light, Mm -hmm. which both affect um, the base of the food web. So things like phytoplankton. Runoff of what? Of organic matter and kind of plant matter? Yeah, exactly. So when runoff coming into the system, it's picking up organic matter from the surrounding terrestrial environment coming into the system Mm -hmm. um, and how that is impacting um, secondary um, producers, so zooplankton. Um, so like, like I said, on one hand, limiting light, which could um, decrease productivity, but also, on the other hand, introducing nutrients, which could potentially increase productivity. Um, so we want to be able to better understand um, measuring across a gradient of um, organic carbon that's occurring here, how their growth rates relate to that to see how, what we can expect to see if we do see increased organic carbon into the system, how we can expect secondary productivity to be affected. So you're measuring several different lakes out here, aren't you, in the productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so of each of these different lakes, are you expecting to see a difference in dissolved organic carbon? So then maybe that would indicate a difference in, or result in a difference in copepod growth? Exactly, yeah. We're trying to get, so we have three sites, we're trying to get a gradient of dissolved organic carbon. And they're, they're very different sites. So one of them is a really small... Um, pond. The other one's a much larger lake, and then another one is kind of in between, has fish, um, very different surrounding environment. And we want to see that gradient so we can more pinpoint how um, the DOC, dissolved organic carbon, is affecting growth rates. And which lake are we at today? Uh, We are at S2, which is the kind of in-between site that I mentioned. So there's actually fish at this site, um, grayling, which is within the the salmon family. Um, and it's a medium-sized type lake. Medium lake. Right. So run me through your whole experiment. What are we actually doing? So we're setting up um, growth rate experiments. So to do that, we're going to first collect some plankton with our plankton net, then get a very narrow size of copepods. Um, so that just represents um, copepods that are within the same um, stage. So that means they're in the same life cycle. So maybe think of it as like a, a class of second graders. Okay. And then we're, um, we're going to be measuring how big those copepods are at that initial time period when they're collected. Um, and then we're also going to be coming out two days later, or 24 hours later, and then also 48 hours later to measure how big that group that started out at the same size, how big they are one and two days later. Okay. Um, so... I guess think of that maybe as coming back to see a group of fifth graders and how tall they are or something. Right. <laughs> um, and so if we know how big the copepods were at the initial period and then how big they are at the final period, we can measure that change in mass over time to see how fast they're growing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I guess we better go and do some field work then. Yes. <laughs> Well, now we've dragged this kind of slightly small cone-shaped net with us. Um, I'm, I'm guessing this is to catch some zooplankton. Yeah, this is a zooplankton net. Um, and so it has a certain filter size or mesh size. So this is 100 microns. So we're going to tow it through the surface of the water. And then anything that's larger than 100 microns that we pick up will get kind of pushed towards the back and kind of stay in this little cone jar type thing that we can um, empty and collect the sample from. Okay, great. Is there a proper technique or just kind of swish Um, it around? Try and go like, so try and keep the top of the net just, just like kind of right below the surface and then kind of go kind of slow, slow enough that you're going, um, that you're not like disturbing the water too much, but 
fast enough that the water that's in there isn't going to spill out. Okay. Um, yeah, you'll be a champ. <laughs> yeah, you're saying you're saying you. Does that mean I'm giving it a go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's super easy. You'll be great. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Oh, good God, that is... Oh, I, <laughs> Adorable, right? Oh, oh, that's completely... I don't want to say gross, because that makes me sound very no. unprofessional. Oh, it's absolutely... Right, okay. Yeah. We've got this tiny little jar, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely ram-packed full of these tiny little... I mean, so they're bigger than I expected. Yeah. I thought they would be... When you said you were looking at them under a microscope, I imagined you wouldn't really be able to see them. Yeah, they're about the size of, like, a grain of rice, I'd say, maybe. Like, a little bit smaller. Half a grain of rice, yeah, maybe. Yeah, like, t- like the end of a grain of rice. Yeah. But they're just flitting around all over the place. Yeah, they're and jumping around. My whole summer in Sweden, I've been drinking from the streams here. <laughs> and I know this is a lake, but yeah. this has really, really put me off doing that. Yeah. Well, this is super concentrated, but yeah, there ch- are chances are probably pretty well that you've consumed a cup of pot in your life. Lovely. I yes. mean, you know, yeah. it's all natural Just protein. protein yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why do you love these guys so much? I know. Well, they're super cool and adorable. You can see them jumping around. Yeah, they're actually very and mobile. I don't know if you can see like their antenna. Hang on. Get up close. They're super. It's almost like their body lengths. Um, oh oh yeah 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 and so they actually kind of use those like radars and they can sense vibrations in the water um, to detect prey and also kind of detect predators and they can also use those antennas to propel themselves forward Mm. Um, and they can actually they're also the fastest animal on the planet really because they can go up to 500 times their body length in one second oh my goodness yeah so not only okay. are they most abundant, they're also the fastest. So everyone should love Copacos. Pretty, pretty <laughs> incredible. Okay, I'll give yeah, them that. Yeah. And I can kind of see there's, I would say there's a couple of different species in there, aren't there? There's some kind of really, really dark brown ones, mm-hmm. some kind of red ones, and some almost clear ones. Yeah, so we have... Which ones so are we interested the darker, in? We're interested in the darker, kind of longer-bodied ones. So yeah. those are calanoid copepods, and they're often thought to be kind of like the the best food for fish they're kind of juicier and more nutritious Mm -hmm. um, rather than cyclopoid copepods which are a lot smaller um, and harder to detect for fish Um, and then also those clear things you're seeing are daphnia um, which is a type of zooplankton not a copepod Um, but they're they're kind of cool not as cool as copepods but they're still cool we get it (laughs) (laughs) okay i could maybe be converted they are quite cool yeah, and some of them you can see have egg sacs, so they're actually carrying little oh. little um, eggs attached to the bottom of their bodies. Oh my goodness. Yeah, oh, so wow. those are the adult females. And they look, I mean, they do look quite incredible just in this little jar. They must be pretty amazing under a microscope. Yeah, I think that's when you can really, truly appreciate them under the microscope. Okay, <laughs> mm, okay cool. So we've collected them. But yeah. what you've just made me do now was, was all great fun for me and very exciting. Yeah. But that wasn't really what you're doing today. Because you did this two days ago, didn't you? What we're actually doing is looking at what's happened since. Exactly. Yeah, so two days ago I came out here, collected zooplankton, um, kind of put them through different filter sizes to get a very small cohort of um, copepods of the same size mm-hmm. and stage. Um, so early copepidites. And then... Can you just tell by looking at them now? Yeah, now I'm I'm, I'm a pro now. No, I'm just <laughs> I just kind of hold them up nerd. and count. Yeah. Um, and I can tell based on the size, like what kind of stage generally they are. Um, and so once I get the size range that I want, um, 
I'll take a sample of that, preserve it, so that's going to represent our initial sample. When you say preserve? Uh, kill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two per, or 2% glutaraldehyde, yeah. We want to try and get a snapshot of the size that they are, so for the sake of science, yes, <laughs> they must be um, sacrificed. There but they go. are the most abundant animal on the planet, so... Okay, um, that's how we're justifying yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, yes. So we've got a kind of representative size of, of what they look like when you first collected them. Exactly. And then from there, we're going to, we preserved some, but we're going to let some other, some from that same original size continue to grow in the field mm -hmm. in these little bottles. Um, so they're staying in the field in the same temperatures and they have filtered site water um, that allows them to be exposed to things that they would naturally be exposed to in the water, but things that aren't uh, bigger than them that could potentially consume them. Um, so then two days later, today, we're coming out here and we're going to filter them down, again, preserve them. And these samples will represent our two days um, post incubation setup mm -hmm. um, to represent the final size um, during that incubation period. Okay, our 48 hour growth time. Yeah. Okay, so that's why we're kind of looking at the lake right now. Uh, you've used um, armbands and flotation devices mm -hmm. to keep them afloat, which is super nifty. Uh, <laughs> means you can't lose them as well because they're yeah. bright orange. Yes, exactly. But we've got these suspended tubs. So those are your incubation chambers from two days ago, right? Exactly. Great. Yeah, so now we're going to take the bottles out and um, filter them down over to on a sieve that is going to collect anything larger than 53 microns. So we'll get the copepods that we're trying to get. Mm -hmm. um, so just filtering them over the sieve. Oh yeah, you can see them getting caught. Yes, so anything jumping around on the sieve, that's Ooh. what's going to be filtered into um, this little 20 milliliter scent okay. uh, vial. So, so how do we get them from the sieve? So what I'm doing now is just using a squirt bottle and kind of rinsing the sides of the sieve um, into with a funnel um, and pouring it into a little vial. Oh, there we go. And so now you can see them kind of jumping around in there. Yep, yep, definitely still moving. Yeah, yeah so that's a good thing. <laughs> Not for long, Not for long. <laughs> Unfortunately, their time is uh, limited. Um, so now we're going to preserve them with the 2% glutaraldehyde okay. um, to kind of get that snapshot of their size that they are at this instant. Great. Yeah. Okay, and then it's back to the lab with them. Exactly, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, we're all copy-potted out. We've collected all of our samples <laughs> for today. Quite a short field day, actually. It's quite nice for me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so what happens next? We've, we've still got time left in the day, so we're going back to the lab. What are we going to do with these, with these guys? Yeah, so they are preserved now. We're going to be taking them back to the lab, looking at them underneath the microscope, um, selecting for the species that we want, which is Eudodatomus graciliotis. Try saying that twice. <laughs> I've had to practice a few times. <laughs> um, and so once you've selected for the species that we want, um, kind of organize them so that they're not touching or overlapping. Um, and then using a camera that's attached to the microscope, we'll take a picture of them. Oh, cool. Um, and then using a software called ImageJ, um, we'll actually convert those pictures um, of the copepods into silhouettes and then ellipse, which is just kind of the circular shape that the copepod ends up making. Mm. Um, and from that, we can use the volume equation for an ellipsoid to get the volume of the copepod. And from there, we can, we'll get a ton of data um, for each individual copepod's volume and we can take the average for that groups and, and see the change um, in volume over time and ultimately convert that to carbon. 
Great. And you've actually worked on similar projects before, haven't you, in the uh, northern San Francisco estuary. How does this compare yeah. to that? Yeah, so this research is actually based off of um, my research, my master's research that I did in um, San Francisco. And very similarly, I was measuring copepod growth rates mm-hmm. um, on a different species, Pseudodaptinus forbizae. I had time to practice that one. <laughs> yeah, you did that very well. I'm not even going to try. So. Um, also very adorable, Kalanoi Kobobon. I'm not with you on this adorable <laughs> thing. You know, I think I like things that are I slightly bigger. I think you have to see them under the microscope and, yeah. then, and then you'll truly appreciate them. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was studying how fast they were growing in the northern San Francisco estuary. And um, they're a major concern there because they're the principal food for delta smelt, which is an endangered fish. Um, in California and an indicator species and so there's a lot of regulations as well as you know just general public concern about the fish's um, status Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of management actions involved in trying to boost the zooplankton productivity and one of the methods being looked at is managed flow pulses so sending fresh water through the system to export copepods from an area of high productivity to an area of low productivity And so the area I was working in, the northern San Francisco estuary, um, after measuring their growth rates, I could firmly say that they're more productive there. And so um, it'll help management um, decisions about whether, yes, if we could potentially get some more fresh water through the system, we can push um, more food further downstream to where these delta smelt are. So that's kind of like a conservation perspective for these um, these endangered species. Yeah. Do you think as well, you know, we're facing a future where our fisheries and our oceans are not yeah. drying up. That's the wrong word. But yeah. we're overfishing Changing. quite heavily. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of uh, money going into creating fish farms and sustainable yeah. fishing. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, your copepod research could possibly be used for boosting the productivity of commercial fish farms as well? That's a good question. I mean, I think when you're dealing with the ocean, it's just such a bigger landscape that it's it's hard to kind of scale up Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit easier with like ponds or um estuaries yeah where it's kind of a a bit more confined but because you know i have to remember they're they can move they're changing with the water and and so i think it's hard to say but i think you know it definitely like if you could measure their productivity um under certain conditions you could see how those conditions if they're going to change if you can get a, a gradient of those conditions, you can measure the conditions rather than the growth rates, which is actually pretty labor intensive, to get a better idea of what kind of productivity you could be expect. Yeah. Okay, well, we're all done with our field work today. We've yeah. reconvened back at the research station uh, in a slightly echoey kind of rumbly lab. So I don't know how the audio quality of this is gonna be, but we're stood in front of I mean, a pretty badass looking microscope, <laughs> just with like a, a camera attached to a tube yeah. at the top. Yeah, it's literally just a digital camera attached through this kind of adapter type pieces that make it so that you can see what the microscope is seeing. Um, and from there, we can take a picture of what's underneath the microscope. So this is where you said to me that I was going to possibly fall in love with copepods as yes, well. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, look, take it, a look. They look pretty tiny on the on the plate now, but then if I have a look in, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So you can even scale. Oh wow! But you can scale to different magnifications, and you can see they're a lot more detailed now. 
Yeah, they really are. They're actually, okay, I kind of get it. They're actually quite cool. <laughs> so they've got these two long, um, like, antenna almost, mm-hmm. kind of floating arms, and then, mm-hmm. like, almost like a fan at the end. Yeah, so they have about five pairs of swimming legs, and then in the back they have also kind of parts that stick out um, a lot shorter, but also help to swim. Uh, and we can see the eggs that you were talking about as well. When we saw them when they were live and they were in the pot, you can kind of you can actually see the eggs now attached. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So they keep the eggs attached right to the bottom of their bodies. The adult females do. Yeah. And then when they're ready to hatch, they'll break off and hatch into nauplii, which are essentially baby um, copepods. Mm. And they don't look really anything like that, but they'll go through. Um, 11 molts or stages until they're ultimately into that final mm. um, adult copepod. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, you won me round. They are actually quite cool when you can <laughs> see them properly and not yeah. just little dots floating in the water. And this seems to be as good a time as any to leave Steph to it, as she has rather a lot of individual copepods now to photograph and to process. And I've got a Skype booked in with researcher Danny Lau from Umia University, who is supervising Steph's project here in Arbisco. So Danny, um, let me start by just asking you the question that I ask every researcher that I try and get on this podcast. Um, what does climate change research actually look like for you and your work? Um, yeah, you, you know, I'm an aquatic ecologist. So to me, climate change research is to understand the food webs, the biodiversity and functioning of aquatic ecosystems and how these will be affected or will change with a changing climate. Um, climate change can affect the aquatic ecosystems alone, but it can also interact with other existing environmental pressures, such as eutrophication, acidification, etc. Mm. And to me, these interactions may result in synergistic impacts, and these could be more difficult to predict. So I think climate change research is also about investigating the effects of these interactions on the aquatic ecosystems. Sure. So can you tell me a little bit about your research specifically and maybe where Steph's project fits in with what you're doing? Um, My research focuses on three major aspects, the food webs, biodiversity and functioning of the aquatic ecosystems, such as lakes and rivers. And I'm also interested in their responses to the environmental alterations. Um, Under the theme of climate change, I ask questions such as how the Quantity and uh, uh, for example, the, the quantity and nutritional quality of the um, food resources for the zooplankton will be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, these food resources not only support the the, the zooplankton but also the whole food webs, for example. And I would like to know what are the consequences for the higher trophic levels, including the zooplankton, benthic invertebrates, and fish. And will they change their diets or will their growth and production be affected? And Steph's study is to compare the growth of zooplankton in northern lakes and ponds with a gradient in the mm-hmm. concentration of dissolved organic matter. Under climate change, the inputs of dissolved organic matter from the terrestrial environment to the freshwaters are expected to increase. And the dissolved organic matter itself can be a food source for zooplankton, but it can also make the water become darker, limiting the light availability for photosynthesis and for the production of phytoplankton. 
And in comparison to the dissolved organic matter, um, the phytoplankton has much higher nutritional quality and is the major food item for zooplankton. Mm -hmm. So now the question is how the changes in the basal food resources will affect the zooplankton. Here I think Steph's study fits in very well and her findings will help us to understand whether zooplankton growth will respond positively or negatively when the dissolved organic matter in water increases. And what do you expect to happen there? Do you expect them to increase or decrease in population size? Um, how to say, many of the lotonics are nutrient poor at the moment and the phytoplankton production can be low. Mm -hmm. So in a changing climate, I think the Kobe po populations in the lotonics or ponds may increase initially because of the increases in the supply of the terrestrial dissolved organic matter, which can subsidize zooplankton. Um, but if the dissolved organic matter continues to increase, it will come to the ponds to inhibit the primary production or the phytoplankton production. This means the zooplankton will have less high quality food in the environment. So I guess the long-term consequence is that the nutritional quality and the production of zooplankton will reduce in the future. And this may result in a chain effect in the high trophy levels. Uh, mm. For example, the production of fish will decrease as well. This is the food web perspective, but in the biodiversity perspective, for example, the, the, for example, the distributions of different organisms will change with climate change. For example, the, the range of species in the warmer temperate regions may expand to the Arctic, while those uh, yes. more co-adapted species in the Arctic, the range may reduce. So there can be more cases of species invasion and replacement in the Arctic ecosystems in the future. Um, and this may result in changes in the biological communities, trophy interactions and food web structures. And I think the copepods cannot avoid these changes. Um, but these impacts are more difficult to predict as um, this involves multiple organisms at the same time and their re mm. responses to climate change can be species specific. And do you think there's anything we can kind of do to limit the impacts that it might have on these really diverse biological communities? Um, of course, we, we can do something. I mean, together. For example, how we, we have a lot of efforts in doing the research, I mean, as a scientist, to understand that the effects of climate change on the organisms is the, the to increase our knowledge level, for example. Mm. It's very important for us to, to make predictions and to talk to, the, for example, the policymakers to, to implement the suitable policies to uh, prevent further changes in the lofton ecosystems, for example. But the major course is climate change. So this involves multiple efforts uh, at different levels as well. So as a scientist, I think our response is to communicate our results to the general public and also to, uh, on the other side, to negotiate or to convince the governments or the, the policymakers to, to implement policies that could limit the changes in these ecosystems. Now, I quite like Danny's response to that question because it's pretty similar to the response that I've gotten from many of the researchers working on the various facets of climate change here in Arbisco this summer. 
A lot of the research that I've been sharing has felt quite niche, but it all fits into this movement and drive for strengthening our understanding of natural processes in order to understand then how they might be affected by climate change and also to improve the accuracy of our global climate prediction models. When we're discussing the future of our planet in the face of climate change and indeed the things that we need to do to mitigate and to combat these changes, we need to come to the table prepared with as much knowledge and as great an understanding as possible to make sure that our plans are as well thought out as they can possibly be. And that's exactly what the scientists up here in Arbisco are doing. Thanks for listening. This is the last episode in the series, so I hope you've enjoyed joining Steph and I as we sampled the microscopic communities here in our Arctic lakes. If you head over to Instagram, you can see what our cubbypods actually looked like, and who knows, you may even find them as cute as Steph does. You can get in touch and let us know what you think of this episode and of the rest of the series by tweeting the Climate Impacts Research Centre at Arctic Cirque or myself at Emma Brisdian. And don't forget that you can always go back and listen to any of our other six episodes. Thanks for listening to Field Notes on Climate Change. Thank you.